Tonight's sermon is from Ephesians 1:16 through 2:1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. I want to begin with quoting Christ from Matthew 24. 24, verse 6. You're probably familiar with it. I think it happens to be pertinent. I think if you know me, I'm preaching and all. You know, I don't really like to, I don't know. I think God's truth is eternal. I don't think it's controlled by current events. But, but it is relevant to current events. And so I was, I was thinking of that, of, that, of that text where Christ says, uh, there will be wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed. This must happen, and the end has not yet come. And the reason I was thinking about that text was just how, I don't know, I want to I I challenge that. And I, I don't want to challenge it because I don't believe it's true, don't get me wrong. I, I just want to ask the question I think this generation would ask, or maybe it would be in our hearts in unbelief at times. Are you kidding me? Let's, let's go back over it. There will be wars and rumors of wars. In fact, he even says this must happen. He makes a very strong predictive play. This is going to happen. I'm telling you. Many issues, what's in the English is so weak. We don't have a way, except perhaps an exclamation point, of capturing the vivid imperative, which is, see to it. That's two, there's two imperatives, actually. See to it that you are not afraid. You are not troubled, says the uh, KGV. Uh, the NSB says uh, that you are not uh, alar- um, frightened, and our ESV says alarmed. See to it, Double, two, two imperatives, implying, uh, not just implying, clearly stating that your fearful response to times of war is sin and disobedience. You were commanded not to be troubled. Wait, is Christ crazy? I'm going to just put it out there. I mean, is he naive? Is, perhaps maybe he's unrealistic. Maybe, maybe he just doesn't understand war. Did he ever see it? He probably, uh, let's be honest, let's be frank, he never saw what we have seen or we could see by the click of a button and, um, by, you know, on, on, in YouTube or, or, on, or on the news. Did he not understand that children get dislocated? You know, I was listening to one of the stories uh, from, from the Ukraine. Of one family had escaped, and she was recounting how the other families were reporting to her that their children were, were talking in their sleep and babbling horrors of the things they had already seen. Some of the kids had gone mute. They wouldn't 
stop talking completely. Did Jesus not know that? He does not understand how the civilian casualties, the, the, wanton, uh, the wanton destruction, uh, and that, let's be honest, uh, I think it was Patton who said it, war is hell. Hell on earth. Heroes killed, injustices everywhere. I just, no, I forbid you to be troubled by this, says Jesus. What do we do with that? How do we respond to it? And I, 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 think, I think it's a fair question. I don't think I'm being unfair. Is there an answer? Because I'll be honest with you, who is this guy is the answer to the question I would ask. Is, who is this rustic from Palestine? Who is he that he would talk like this about these things and tell us how we should respond? Well, I think our text is going to take us to answers. I think it's going to take us to a discovery. I think we're going to find there's an answer in this. And this very simple assumption that breathes out of the dense syntax of this wonderful text. And that is this. I think an answer lies in the absolute supremacy of Jesus. The matchless greatness and the absolute supremacy of Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to go, and that's, that, that's, that's what we'll be doing tonight. And, and we're, we're right in the middle, those of you who are guests, we're right in the middle of unpacking something that was introduced to us in, the, in verse 18. About asking, where, where Paul is asking that, that the eyes of these people's hearts would be enlightened. And, and it would be enlightened by the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And two clauses are introduced in verse 18. Two clauses we've looked at. And th- that, that we would be enlightened to know first, what's the hope to which we're called to? And the second clause seems to expand that into, into beautiful, a beautiful idea that we would know what are the glorious riches, his glorious inheritance in the saints, his inheritance in us. And now we're on to the third idea, and it's not just a clause, it's, it's a string of clauses now. And they're all about, and they all continue to reiterate and speak of the absolute supremacy of Jesus. That's where I want to go. And I, and I want you, you and I'm going to invite you right now, if you're wise, if you're wise right now, you'll begin to pray. You can pray and listen at the same time. It's possible. I've done it before. You can pray and you can listen. You need to pray because you'll notice our first point comes right out the gate. Paul says, and Paul believes, that you're not going to get the supremacy of Jesus unless what? The Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, reveals him to you. In other words, this idea that I'm pitching today, this idea that, that is in the text, this, this, this idea of the supremacy, the absolute grandeur of Jesus cannot merely be apprehended by your rational mind. No, no, it has to be revealed to you. It has to be revealed to you in the wisdom and revelation of the Spirit. Why is this so important right out the gate? Well, because, because it... This has a way, one of the scriptures, things the scriptures are doing here is, that, is they have a way of kind of addressing all of our false ideas about God. We, we all have them. <laughs> they, they, they creep into our minds. We, we have them in our imagination. Maybe they were imported by a TV show. And I remember one time, I mean, who, who's played God on TV? George Burns. That's the one I remember. Morgan Freeman. Uh, who knows who your God is, right? But, but whatever the case may be, 
we all have a creep that happens in our imagination and our thoughts where we get erroneous, mistaken, and absolutely idiotic at times visions of who God is. They're wrong. Wrong-headed, wrong-hearted. What do we need? Do we need more data? Yes, we do need more data. Data's here. Tons of data is here. We're going to look at it. But we need the Holy Spirit. You need, a, you need an intervention by God to open your heart to these things. Because the things we have chosen, the God we choose, the God we create in our own imagination is often stale and tinny without power. And in fact, I suspect I'm asking those questions about Jesus. How could Jesus say those things? And some of us, that rocks us a little bit. Like, well, I don't know what the answer to that is. And that's probably because we have an inadequate, an unbiblical, an unspiritual, an unholy spirit vision of who Jesus is. And so we're now we're beginning in verse, uh, longest, the longest part of his prayer here, this last part, beginning in verse 19. And we're looking at the Holy Spirit revealing to us the absolute supremacy of Jesus. Something else occurs to me here, before we even go into the details. There's the, the, the density of the text You'll see what I mean. There's a really beautiful unpacking that happens here. All the teaching that happens in this text is kind of remarkable. But even before we get to that, I, w- I want you to hear something else that, that, that is on Paul's mind and is in the Holy Spirit's work. And that is this. Just contemplating, meditating, and focusing on the supremacy of Jesus has a healing, equipping, transforming power. Have you ever heard, it's very common in a lot of self-help books in this generation, to identify that what you focus on is what you get. And if you focus, let's say, on wealth, and so you visualize it, these ideas that you focus, you focus on something, that's what you get. And there's a deep, deep truth in that. If you focus on your satisfaction in this world, you will receive it. And you will receive that and nothing else. There's another thing, there's another, this is also a possibility, although there's pitfalls in this, there's a possibility of life here. And there's a possibility that's in Paul's mind, because Paul believes that you and I, if we get a greater focus, if we have a greater contemplation, that the the work of that contemplation is transforming and healing and equipping for the heart, for you and I in our lives. We are changed by what we focus on. How much more so will we be changed when we put our focus on Jesus? You see? That's what's breathing in the text here. Look, there's ways we can think about this. I'll, I'll begin with a way, and then we'll fill in some of the details. But let's begin with a way, and you've heard me talk about this before, but I'm reminding you because I love to be reminded of myself. And that's Anselm. Anselm's this 11th century saint who, write, who, who does these wonderful uh, thinking about God, why God became man, is one of his famous books. But he developed what he called, was kind of a rule for thinking about God. And he defined God as this. That being greater than which none can be conceived. That's a little bit fancy, I know. But you'll follow me here. That being greater than which none can be conceived. And I want to introduce you to something here. You have an idea of God's power, Gina. You have an idea of what his power, his majesty, his might, his, his transcendence is. And as you think that and imagine it, I want you to imagine something that comes right you should hear in your heart right after you think you've got God big enough. He's bigger than that. 
It's a rule. It's, it's an introduction to how to think about God. God is always greater than you imagined him to be. He must be, for he is eternally so. He, this is kind of fun to think this way, because a lot of us will put God into a box. We'll limit him. We have a, we have a very limited understanding, and, 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 and we're being invited. And, and one of the things that's happening in this presentation of the supremacy of Jesus, that this contemplation never ends. That this contemplation which grows the heart and, and heals the heart and brings life and transformation, this contemplation, this meditation on him, this focus on Jesus, yeah, it, it expands. So whatever you think you know who God is, guess what? You're mistaken. He's greater yet than that. Praise him. I know God to be such a great God of love. There's no God like him in love. No, he's even greater than that. Well, I, he's bigger than bigness itself. <laughs> and nothing can contain him, not even our minds or our imaginations. And this rule is just, it, it, we're being introduced here is the tremendous power of this contemplation. Let's go on. For the text itself will reward us. The text will reward us. What, what is it? It unpacks the supremacy of Jesus over and over again. Now, I'm organizing it. Paul's syntax is a little bit rambling, but, but it's all there. And there are three things, there are three events that Paul focuses on. Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension to the throne, and Jesus being given to the church, given to his people. These are three things the Bible talks about. Now, the first one, this idea of his resurrection. This is the absolute supremacy of Jesus over death. It's right there in verse 20. It's right there in verse 20. It, you were to, that he, that we know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is both spiritual and physical. And this is the power of God. Now, to get our hands on this, we're going to be looking at these things in greater detail as we focus in on particular clauses in the weeks ahead. But I get, the, get this. We estimate, and a good scientific theory estimates that the universe is nearly 14 billion years old. 14 billion years. And the state of matter suns and galaxies, etc., is in a constant state, is one of the laws of science, a constant state of entropy. Everything's cooling. If you've heard this, but one of the speculations of science is that some untold time in the future, trillions of years from now, there will be the heat death of the universe. Why? Because everything's moving from a state of order to disorder. Everything's moving to decay. Everything is... And, and if you're older, you older folks like me, you know that that's very true. You know it personally. You know it physically. You know, it, you know it in your toes, right? One of the things I love about this absolute supremacy of Jesus is that rising from the dead, he said, stop to 14 billion years of decay. Who, who is this guy? We don't reckon, we're very used to this message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do not hear, what we cannot hear at times because our imagination hasn't been compassed it, is that this is a claim to be able to reverse what is irreversible according to every notion or ability or concept of man. Jesus says, I'm going to do that. That's who I am. That's the kind of power we're talking about. The absolute supremacy of Christ over death. It continues. 
What's the second thing we see? The absolute supremacy of Jesus over every and all creatures. This is in verse 20 and 21. You can count them. Uh, it says here that he above, far above all rule and authority. And then again, uh, it says every name that is named. And then in verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. All, all, every, all. Uh, name who you would name. Name who you would name. Christ is claiming supremacy over every other being in creation. Take the demonic. He is greater. They have no, no contest. Uh, Satan gets called the prince of the power of the air in the next chapter. <laughs> Nothing compared. Not even, can't even hold a candle to this. Putin, guess what? He is under Christ's feet. So is Biden. So take your pick. So is your boss. <laughs> so is your husband. So is your wife. So is, so, so your kids. So, so is everything. And there's this, there's this pitch that, uh, that, it, that every single identifiable Threat to you and to me and to everything we hold dear or fear is under Christ's feet. Uh, by the way, that under his feet, it's not as, it's, it's, I guess it's very humbling. But there's, this is said again, that the earth is his footstool. This idea that, you know, a king is in a big chair and he, maybe, you know, it's a big enough chair that he can need some place for his foot to rest. And guess what his foot rests on? It rests on, on everybody. Absolute control. Supremacy of Christ over every other creature. And the final thing the text teaches is the absolute supremacy of Jesus over all dimensions. We're introduced first to the spiritual dimension. He's in the heavenly places. That's where he's seated. And then verse 21, he, is over, he, is, he has absolute supremacy in this age and the age to come. That's the dimension of time. He controls all events, future and past. And then... He spatially, he fills all, in all, in verse 23. In the, by the way, if you want to sound smart, this is where the omnis come in, right? The omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. The omni word means all in Greek. So it's, it's the all-encompassing word. But that's, that's if you want to act like you, you've got a, a college education. Now, it, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't, you don't care to. Oh, that's fine. Because the children can say it better than all of us, can't they? I'm serious. And this is a song that I'm going to invite you to sing in your heart as a part of you engaging the power of contemplating Jesus. What's that song? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And there are a bunch of hand signals and everything. I don't know what they are. Uh, my God is so big. What a what a what an absolutely gorgeous song to sing in your heart, to contemplate again, to renew your contemplation when the when the omnipotent words all those words don't make any sense. Just to say that my God is so big. That's essentially what I'm saying, isn't it? It's absolute supremacy. I'm using a lot of fancy words, but guess what? All I'm saying is God's really really big, a lot bigger than you and me, and everything, and the universe, and time, and space, and heavens, and praise Him. The reason I took the time to unpack that is so you can see the depths of the riches of what Paul is inviting you to contemplate. He, he's giving you the data. These are the things to, to meditate on, to focus yourself on, because this is the God who you have. By the way, this is the God given to us. That's exactly, look at look in verse 22. He gave him his head over all things. It's kind of summing up everything he said to the church, to us. He's the gift. It's, and all of that, all of what I just described about Jesus has been just handed to you by faith 
And that's nothing but pure, unadulterated, glorious, wonderful grace. Grace, grace, and more grace. This is a gift to you. It's God. Everything I just said about him is yours, Jim, and mine. It's yours, Luke. It's mine. Praise him. <laughs> what a wonderful God we worship. You know, and, and the idea here is, is that the act of contemplating and meditating and focusing on any part and all the parts and what they mean being given to us. This is life for the soul. This is, oh, this is peace. And this is, oh, yeah, this is healing. You know, it's funny. All these things, are, they all encompass all the fears we all have, right? Let's, but let's return to our original question. What was my original question? Who is this guy? Do you see why now we can answer that question? <laughs> After we've taken the time to contemplate what his supremacy is, now when he says to you, hey, see to it that you aren't alarmed or frightened or scared and commands that. Now you know why unbelief is disobedience to Jesus, right? The, un the, the unbelief of fear is disobedience. It doesn't work when you have this kind of greatness in your focus, in your contemplation. How wonderful. You know, fear is a funny thing. Fear is a funny thing. We have the fear of death. He's greater than death. Maybe you have a fear of other people. It's very, very hard not to be afraid of other people and the things they could do, the, things they out, the secret people that might attack you, the other, other people that hate you, the things about the future or the past or spiritual things. It's a, it, or to be alone. All these time after time, fear. The problem fear is dealt with. You know what's funny? The great, you know what the, one of the, I don't know if you know this, I've experienced this, it's not fun. But when you're caught in a phobia, some kind of a phobia, like agoraphobia, it'd be a fear of open spaces or claustrophobia. Any, anybody claustrophobic? Fear of being in, I found out I was claustrophobic climbing one time. It's not, it's, it's not a fun thing to find out when you're buried in a crack 400 feet in the air. <laughs> it's like, I'm terrified of this. This is scary. And I couldn't even control it. Claustrophobia. But you know what's funny? Uh, what happens with people who are caught up who are focused, who contemplate, who meditate on their fears. I got all of you there, didn't I? Haven't we all done that? You obsess about your fears? How many, how many of you do the late night what if game? Oh, what if this happens? Oh, what if this happens? And, and you, can, you can work yourself into quite a corner, can't you? I know I have. Well, one of the things that happens with phobias, and this is, what, this is the dead end, by the way, is somebody who gets trapped in agoraphobia, let's say, the fear of open spaces, that's not the fear that winds up immobilizing them often. They become afraid of something else. They become afraid of having the fear experience itself. They become afraid of fear. And so they never go outside now. Have you ever been just afraid of being afraid? That's a room without any doors or windows. That's isolation. That's destruction. That's tunnel vision. What's the answer? That's slavish fear. What's the answer? Fear him who said, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Do not let your hearts be troubled by that. I have overcome the world. Praise him. See, godly fear, godly fear is an answer 
to slavish fear. Because we're, I don't know about you guys, but I, I, all I'm, do, I'm presenting you with things the Bible right here in this text is telling you about a mighty God, and we are, our minds can barely get around it. We are so deeply insensitive to it, and this is why we need the Holy Spirit to work into us true knowledge, true fear of God. Because you know, you can only really be afraid of one thing at a time. <laughs> one fear will always chase out another, and the fear of God will chase out everything else. This now it begins to reiterate and re-represent to us the tremendous power of this contemplation, of this meditative work, of this kind of focus. And if you would do this, this this is really what I'm describing as worship, right? You can be set free from fear. Because what you focus on changes you, and nothing you focus on changes you more than Jesus. Praise him. Now, it gets better, though. Because we haven't even gotten to the punchline yet. I, I'm serious. Uh, this is a punchline for me. Now, I have asked you, and I've invited you to be praying for my preaching. And I want you to be praying that the eyes of my heart would be enlightened. I, I really need that. I need, I need that as desperately as you need it. And so, I, as I'm praying for that, I was reading the text, and, and I'm sitting there, and I, you know, you should, you, if, you serve, if you ever... You ever look at my notes in my, 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 my notebook? They're just a maze of ideas. Like, I just go crazy when I'm writing a sermon. You know, it's just scribble straw and lines and arrows everywhere. And it's, it, it looks like madness, right? And maybe, maybe when you're listening to my preaching, you're like, yeah, I believe that. And uh, but this is the one. I guess sometimes I'll get to something. And this text goes to a stunning conclusion. I didn't know this. I didn't know this until I was deep in the commentaries about it. But on verse 22, or actually leading into verse 23, there's an expression, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is this fullness that's being talked about there? Now, there's been a a, a lot of, uh, there was a huge hubbub in New Testament scholarship in the 20th century about that verse. Because it's, because what's the fullness? What is the fullness that fills this absolutely supreme Jesus? It's the church. It's you and me. We are the fullness of this God I was just describing. You know, I told you, there's an elemental question we could ask Jesus. Who is this guy, Jesus, to say to us, we shouldn't be troubled by war. And then we realize, well, this guy, Jesus, is not a, he's the God-man. He is the king of kings. He is absolutely supreme. Honestly, that's what's called a problem of evil question. A lot of people think that's a, that's a tough one. Boy, and I don't really have a problem with the problem of evil. Because in the end, I don't think we've ever gotten what we deserve as people. As a wicked, wicked race that we are. I think there's a much deeper problem in the text. And that's the problem of God's goodness. Why is God good to us? Why is God good to a people who don't care about him, who, who, who probably think, oh, well, I can't wait till the sermon's over so I can go home kind of people. That's the kind of people we are. The problem of goodness is a much more profound, logical problem in the scriptures than the problem of evil. Because goodness just doesn't make sense. Not goodness to wicked people. 
And then we come to texts like this. <laughs> you know, I'm not worthy to preach this. This is a truth greater than I can even get my head around. The absolute supremacy of Jesus is more amazing than we possibly imagined because we have a bigger second question now being asked. The absolute supremacy of Jesus has its fullness in First Presbyterian Church. I don't get it. But that's what the text says. Now, how, how are you going to make sense of that? If God, if, well, let's just, let's just make this, let's just present the logical problem. If, if Christ is absolutely supreme and he has all things in himself, then what, how on earth can Spencer or Clay or Carol be a part of his fullness? How do we fill what is already full? Right? Unless there's a different kind of fullness. There is another kind of fullness in the gospel. And that's the fullness that results from God loving what was not worthy of love to begin with. What does he say? My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, what if, what if this is a fullness? What if it is? This is a fullness. <laughs> this is a fullness that fills up those who are suffering. We can't, we, we can't understand this unless his fullness is somehow measured against the emptiness it fills. You see, that makes sense. That's a, it's like a new qualitative dimension of his fullness. Christ is totally full in himself. Of course he is. He, he lacks nothing. Ah, oh, but there's a way we can look at that and we see how we, because of our emptiness, reveal his fullness to be even greater than we thought. We're like a foil, as it were, reflecting back what the claim to be more astounding than we thought. Because everything I just said about Jesus, he did for sinners. <laughs> He did for the ruined. He did it for people who hated it. Because that's why, we, that's why I included that clause from the second chapter, verse 1, right? But you were dead in your trespasses, and he did this for you. When you still hated him, we were still enemies, and we still hated God. Look, listen to this. We can't understand this unless his fullness is somehow measured against the emptiness it fills and the death it heals and the suffering it works through, the insignificance it honors and exalts. Look, you know, and I, I struggle all the time with whether I, I matter at all, whether I'm just totally irrelevant in this world. Don't you? Ah, what a fullness is coming from the supremacy of Jesus that he, he fills he loves that which is, he makes significant that which is insignificant in the eyes of the world. Praise him. Praise him. How will we ever stop praising him when we finally see this as true as it really is? This means that the personal failure we know all the time is given real victory. Isn't in his strength made perfect in weakness? But there's a last part of the riddle I want you to get with me here. And I can't, I have, you have to hear this. To the church. The gospel again and again exists in the New Testament in the plurals. That's often invisible. Look at, look at the Ephesians 2.1. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no way of reading that in English to know whether that's singular or plural, right? You don't know. You have to look at the Greek. It's just, it's all, it happens to all be in the plural, by the way. It's all plural. It was given to the church, which is the fullness. I think, we're, I think we need to hear something here. Y'all together 
are the fullness. We all together. That's, what is, there's, a, there's something in here, isn't there? I hope it starts to niggle at your conscience and pull you and, and, and compel you. You will never know or grow in the contemplation of the fullness of God, of Jesus, if you don't go to church. If you're not a part of the community. If you're not a part of loving one another. This is given to us as a trust together. And so a lot of us are stunted because we refuse. We refuse to humble ourselves and love our others or, or make the sacrifices that are necessary. And sometimes the painful ones. You know, what about when the bunch of people in the church are just not very likable? I, I shared this with Carol. My mom used to say, I'm really glad that God commanded us to love one another because, and not to like each other because it's really hard to like some people, isn't it? But you gotta, it doesn't matter. You've got to love them. We are often robbing ourselves and one another, and most of all, him of his fullness. His fullness. You are his fullness. Oh, I don't care about that. You know, I was thinking about this. I, I look all the places this goes. You know, this is a holy fullness here. And this is why gossip is such a ruin to the church and the stink of the pure evil of the devil. Because it violates the beautiful supremacy of Jesus. It violates the fullness he possesses in us. That's why for you know, a lot of churches I know can get caught, it's easy to get caught in this conceit that you know, we're not like those other churches and we're not, we don't do what those other churches do and, and we're, we're better than they are because we do this or we do that or we're more about preaching, we're more about love or we're not that stodgy old... Ah! Let, 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 let's never speak like that in our, our community. Amen? Let's never speak like that. Let us value and love what God has said is his fullness. And you should love it too. Give your heart to one another in the church. And I think in that kind of exchange, that kind of commitment to one another, oh, wait, you know one of the things I notice happens is, you know, as I get close to Ted and Corey, as we draw close to each other in prayer as leaders, I know that I have tasted and seen more of the greatness of Jesus, right? Haven't you, brother? Haven't you? Yeah. Than I ever had alone. It's funny because I'm such a rugged individualist. I, I seriously, I, I am totally 100% a sucker for the American dream. I love the picture of myself as some rugged church planter out there making it all happen myself. And that's just a lie. It's bogus. Don't give in to that anymore. Don't give in to these things. And, and, and let's become, let's seek, let's ask. And you know what this now means? You know what this means together? The tremendous power of this contemplation together means we will grasp more. It gets kind of exciting. What we focus on changes us. That means we can change as we together focus on him, contemplate and meditate on the greatness of our Savior. And that's why every week, every week you will hear me talk about nothing but Jesus. Because that's, that's the only hope for us. And that will, us becoming, be, will be us becoming that fullness. This text began, uh, the first clause was waiting. Waiting and watching worshipfully. The hope to which you're called. We're invited to wait. And, 
And, then, and, and, and one of the things he wants us to know by the Spirit is are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And now it's the immeasurable power, the immeasurable power of Christ. Um, you know, um, the world laughs at us. The world thinks we're foolish. And if we're going to get together and wait and watch and worship and focus our hearts and contemplation on Jesus is our hope and the hope of our culture, hope of our time, the hope against what war does and is. We're going to focus on Jesus. You know, I mean, the world mocks this. It mocks it in a lot of ways. One of the famous ways it mocked it, mocked it was Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Gatto. You familiar with this play? It premiered in 1953 in Paris. It actually was horribly hated at first until some critics gave it a rave review, and that switched everything around. Then everybody wants to see it. By the way, it's often pronounced in English, Godot, and Beckett himself said, that's completely wrong. It is Gatto. Because Gatto sounds like Bozo. He didn't say that part. But it's a vaudevillian part of the play. The two guys who are waiting for God are, 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 are comic in their folly, and they talk about the Godot they're waiting for, the Godot they're waiting for, and, and then they're widely waiting, and the little boy comes out to tell them the Godot's coming tomorrow, and, and then another man, and these players come in and out, and, and it's, it's, it's brutal. They're waiting for nothing. They're waiting, they're fools, having idle chit-chat in the face of the meaninglessness of this world. That's what the world thinks we're doing in worship. You know that? That's what they all think we're doing here. I hope you heard tonight, I hope that Jesus, and I don't know, I hope the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation answered our prayers so that you would know something tonight about the power and the supremacy of Jesus Christ as something given to you and to us. Praise him. Praise him. Let's pray. Dearest Father, only if you ordain it, pour out the Holy Spirit like we are so eager and desperate, we're such a, I feel like we're just starving, Father, for, for you to pour out your presence on us. I, I don't even know if I even scratch the surface of this idea of your fullness. We, we're your full, We're your fullness. But I thank you that, full, that that must mean, it must mean that you fill up what is so lacking. And that's just beautiful. That when we are weak, you are strong. You're being revealed in strength. We praise you for that. Well, we ask, Father, for new hearts of contemplation, new hearts of meditation. Forgive us for meditating on our Instagram and our and our and our emails and our texts and always 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 focusing on maybe some new binge binging some new show or uh, focusing on uh, uh, what we want to buy next or focusing our focus you know you know you know us father you see us focus on everything we can would you holy spirit renew us in our focus and a contemplation and a meditation on the greatness of Jesus <laughs> Spirit of wisdom and revelation, will you do this work in us, for us, for yourself, for your own namesake?
for this beautiful, glorious Jesus, your son? Would you speak peace to us in the times of war and the threat of, gosh, the threat of horrible war? Just the idea that we're suddenly back into that, that nuclear fears again? I never thought I'd see that in my life, Father. Ah, oh, I hear it. I hear your son now. I hear him forbid us. Don't be troubled. Holy Spirit, give us a vision of Jesus. And what could trouble us if we have that? Help us to do this this week. Help us to create that on Tuesday. Give us new passion for your people, one another. Give us new joy in one another. Let us, Father, let us taste some of that fullness in our community and amongst one another. All for the glory of Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name we come. It's in Jesus' name that we're going to celebrate this meal. Amen.